Welcome to our listeners. This is your host, Mohanad Abu Sarah, a PhD student at the University of Toronto, Department for the Study of Religion. The Reading Muslims Project at the Institute of Islamic Studies is a Connaught Global Challenge recipient. Its mandate is to interrogate the place of textuality within Islamic studies. One of its four hubs is called Reading Practices which involves exploring the methods and assumptions of philologists and literary scholars. Professor Junaid Qadri joins us today to discuss questions on Islamic intellectual history and modernity. Professor Qadri is Associate Professor of History and Director of the Program in Religious Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His areas of interest include Islamic legal history, modernity, and colonialism. He earned his PhD from the Institute of Islamic Studies at McGill University. His first book entitled Transformations of Tradition, Islamic Law and Colonial Modernity is based on his PhD dissertation in which he examines the Sharia discourses as they develop in relation to fundamental categories of modernity. The book examines the historical development of the tradition of Islamic law as a result of the entanglement with colonial modernity. In doing so, Professor Qadri focuses on the writing of the Hanafi jurist Muhammad Bakhit al-Muti'i and how his discourse was affected by a European mode of knowledge. Thus, the book aims to problematize the taken-for-granted economy of Muslim modernists or reformers versus traditionalists. He demonstrates that the colonial moment of the late 19th and early 20th centuries influenced the way that traditionalists understood history and authority and religion and the secular, which makes a significant rupture with the way that pre-modern jurists understood them. This is to say that Professor Qadri investigates the epistemological foundation of Bakhit al-Muti'i's discourse. We are grateful to have the opportunity to speak to him today. Professor Qadri, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion. So I want to zoom out a little bit and ask about the meaning of Islamic thoughts. Your book discusses the Hanafi school of law as a tradition that lasted hundreds of years and underpins an epistemological foundation. But also your book could be classified as a work of intellectual history. So the question again is, what is the meaning of Islamic thought given the modern and pre-modern context? And what is the significance of schools of law in Islamic intellectual history? So this is a, a really interesting question. And as you said, it, it, it pushes me to kind of take a step back from the very specific uh, uh, concerns that I take up in the book. And it really recalls the sorts of debates that happen in other fields of, um, uh, of intellectual history in the Islamic world. So I have in mind particularly questions uh, that come up uh, regularly and with a lot of sort of um, um, debate behind them uh, in Islamic philosophy, for example, right? So questions about whether we call this Arabic philosophy or Islamic philosophy and how do we distinguish between them? Um, questions that maybe also come up uh, in, in fields like art, right? Art history, 
um, and what counts as Islamic art. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, uh, listeners who may be familiar uh, with the work uh, most recently. Uh, other people have also broached this topic in different ways, but most recently by Shahab Ahmed, who really tries to get at what we mean when we use this kind of um, descriptor Islam or Islamic to refer to something. Um, and I think these, these open up kind of lots of really interesting questions in one way that people have often, uh, uh, um, you know, in some way or another tried to address this question is by really thinking about Islamic whatever, so Islamic thought in this question, uh, uh, as anything that is produced by Muslims, right? And in fact, it, you find some of this, or I, I've um, noticed some of this also in some modern Arabic writings in which people uh, uh, tend to tend to talk about what we mean by Islamic heritage or turath, you know, also in terms of, you know, how exactly, what exactly Muslims have produced, and we can sort of uh, um, uh, group that together as turath, right? So this is, you know, in many ways, this is a kind of view of Islam that is very inclusive, very broad, includes a lot of different things, um, and is in some ways, you know, um, uh, loosely uh, bound together, right? Um, <clears throat> I think one of the questions that I was confronted with, although I didn't think about when it, this question, you know, I thought about it sort of as a background question, but maybe not as directly as I could have, one of the things I was really interested in is to think about the connection between uh, thought and praxis, or so thinking and acting, or thinking and doing, let's say. And here's, I think, where law becomes particularly important, right? And, 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 and to some degree, although the concerns are somewhat different here, I have in mind the work of um, an ancient person who, works in a, who worked in ancient philosophy, Pierre Hadot, who really drew a very strong connection between praxis and thought in a different way than I have in mind, certainly, uh, thinking about the way that uh, spiritual exercises and so forth are a form of philosophy. But one of the things that he kind of drew attention to is the way that, you know, the distinct between doing a kind of philosophy and the distinction between kind of producing a discourse on philosophy um, are, are sort of two different things, right? And I think this is important in, you know, in a variety of ways, especially for those of us who work in the academy to think about as well. But I think what really gets um, accentuated in the case of Islamic law is the very close connection between thought and praxis, right? The kind of divide between thought and praxis is not as easily drawn. Um, and what we have in the case of Islamic law certainly is a field of thought that's directed toward the delineation and, and making precise kind of determinations about what proper practice actually is. So I think what I have in mind when Islamic thought, at least in the way that it emerges in my, in, in, in my book, is really thinking about the way Islamic thought connects to kind of practice, and it's not something that sort of lives outside of it. And I think uh, because I say that this is particularly acute in the case of Islamic law, I think then that drives us to, to think a little bit about what it is that's thought-based about it. And, I, and, you know, one of the things that I really do want to emphasize is in, as you say, in the pre-modern world, for example, but I think continues to be the case in much of the modern world, um, this kind of focus on right action, on good action, on how to behave and how to conduct oneself is really something that is given a lot of thought, right? There's a lot of um, consideration behind how, how it happens. Uh, and it's really a kind of fundamental concern of, uh, of pre-modern, and I want to say also modern to a large extent, Muslims. And so 
a certain kind of field of thinking that develops develops around it. And uh, part of that field of thinking is really to make sure that we conduct ourselves in ways that are intellectually consistent with one another, right? And that are consistent with the world that we live in. Uh, but because we're kind of focused on thought in this question, I really want to draw the connection here that what, what I find, if you think of the kind of span of Islamic legal thinking, one of the major drives in that is to really, in, um, is to really pursue a kind of intellectual consistency such that, you know, any given what seem ritualistic or what seem kind of uninteresting, perhaps archaic ways of, of behaving are given lots of thought and there's lots of debate and lots of dis- discussion about how exactly that should be. And so there's this kind of drive towards consistency that really happens over many centuries, but is, you know, present from a pretty early stage. And this is where I think um, my preoccupation, I guess, with the medhabs in my book, really comes from, right? That we can think, of course, as what, as, you know, labeling things as Islamic as just simply what Islam, what Muslims do. And I think that there is, you know, there's a certain kind of compelling, important consideration or some kind of important point that 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 point is trying to drive home. At the same time, I think what we're also interested in is trying to, or at least when we look at it from the vantage point of history, what we're also interested in is trying to draw out, you know, what it is that kind of unifies this thinking, right? What it is that kind of gives it a certain kind of consistency that we can begin to think about it in terms of a tradition that is more than just a kind of constellation or a conglomeration of different ideas, but is instead has a kind of logic to it that we can cover, make sense of, and frankly is actually made quite explicit in the case in the case of um, many Islamic disciplines and in, in, in Islamic law in particular. So I find the madhab to be this really interesting case in which we have a kind of corporate attempt over many centuries to produce something to produce an account of what it means to live properly, what it means to live in a good way or what it means to live rightly uh, in a way that demands a certain kind of you know pre-thinking let's say. So I so I think that that's you know, for me, anyways, and in the work that I've done so far, I think that that's a major drive of what I mean to uh, what I mean to say when when we think about Islamic thought. That's interesting. The link between uh, thinking and actions in in the Islamic tradition. I think that could be called habitus, using Pierre Bourdieu's uh, mm-hmm. word. So, if you are thinking about this logic uh, of Islamic tradition. Modern scholars have been discussing the question of continuity and rupture, but when they discuss ruptures, they usually focus on the so-called reformers, modernists, or sometimes Islamicists. But your book argues that ruptures also happened with traditionalists who follow the classical Islamic schools of law. Can you please explain the problem of continuity and rupture? And what are the tools by which we can investigate whether a contemporary idea constitutes a continuity or rupture with the pre-modern Islamic tradition? Yes, I mean, this is a really good question, a really big question, one that really drives um, much of what I'm thinking about in the book. And I like the way you sort of started drawing this distinction, because I think it's one certainly that informs the book in a, in a kind of very recurring way throughout throughout the text itself. And that is the the kind of contrast that's often drawn between modernists and, and, and reformers on the one hand, or modernist reformers, or however you'd like 
to label that group. And then on the other hand, again, you know, we can talk about labels, but traditionalists kind of broadly speaking, who are thought to be resistant, right? And, and in many ways, especially in older literature are almost, it's a, it's a given that there is this kind of resistant component of Muslim societies as a resistant population of Muslim societies is often associated with the ulama and often associated in the case of Egypt, for example, um, with Azhar University, or at least segments of it, right, um, that are uh, that really want to kind of stand in the way, act as an obstacle. So there's a kind of modernization theory built into it in which there's like, you know, this kind of heroic move towards a modernity that is being um, thwarted by people who are standing in the way. I think much more recent literature has, has really gotten away from that. And so we're not really confronted with the same sorts of ideas. But I think um, my, my thinking on this is really that in many ways, this kind of idea, and this is really something that informs the book, the idea that, that modernity is sort of that one can uh, be immune from modernity, that one can kind of st- stay outside of it, step outside of it, despite the kind of overhaul of society that's happening, despite the kind of major changes that, that, we're, that we're feeling, um, that people were feeling at the time, um, seems to be a mistaken one. And I think the idea rather that modernity is something that constitutes all of us and I task those of us who are studying this period is to try to unravel how exactly that comes to be, what it looks like. It may look differently for those people that we're calling traditionalists and what it may look, look differently for those people that we tend to call modernists. And we might unexpectedly find points of convergence and we might interestingly find points of difference that we want to draw out. But um, to kind of fall back onto the easy ways of describing them as simply, you know, kind of pursuers of modernity at all costs. And then a segment of the population that simply wants to stand in the way of that seems to me to to miss a lot. So more recent scholarship, I think, has really occupied itself with this idea of continuity and rupture, which you which you drew attention to. And I think, you know, there are a number of considerations here. And I think one of the, you know, one of the considerations is how exactly do we conceive of what we mean by an Islamic tradition? So sort of a little bit hearkening back to the previous question to some extent. Part of it is also to try to think about questions of authenticity, right? Questions of to what extent should we imagine that we are entirely different people and therefore, and I sort of resist that therefore, but anyways, that therefore we are entirely inauthentic to a kind of um, heritage and intellectual tradition that we claim to belong to, right? So people would want to say that if, you know, there's a very strong rupture, then we're somehow, um, you know, by definition, ruptured from, separated from what went before. And that that says something about our kind of modern Muslims' current authenticity, right? I want to kind of uh, resist that second move and say the authenticity isn't necessarily tied up necessarily in a way that a rupture sort of, kinds of ruptures anyways, that I'm talking about necessarily stand in the way of. But these are the sorts of questions that people, that have really occupied people. And you can get a sense, you know, for why it would be particularly important to kind of make, uh, to, to take stances on this question, because it really says a lot about the future of Muslim societies, the present of Muslim societies, and, and, and obviously the past as well. So one of the one of the reasons that people have wanted to stress a more what we might call continuity is to 
demonstrate how Muslim societies themselves were not entirely or exclusively, let's say, victims of a European colonialism, but were also in some way or other drawing on their own intellectual and other traditions to construct a modernity for themselves that is not entirely reducible to colonial modernity. And so again, you see this, there's kind of lots of stakes built in, right? And so, um, so that's, I think, part of the reason that these questions have become really important. So that's just to kind of provide a bit of a background. I think in some ways, I, I you know, the book, as you mentioned, really tries to draw out the degree to which Islamic law as a discipline has been affected by these major changes. And, you know, it, it's particularly important, I think, to think about this case, because one way to think about Islamic, you know, one way to think about Islamic law is in this old fashioned way, where you say that this is one of those old things that is a relic of a previous time, it doesn't have anything to say to the to the present day, precisely because it is kind of, you know, we're living in entirely different circumstances, entirely different context altogether. And so I, I, one of the things that I guess I wanted to do is to show the way that Islamic law actually responded to these challenges, right? Um, responded in a way I want to say that is not entirely as agentive as some other scholars might want to put it. Responding in a way that is doesn't entirely escape the demands of a colonial modernity, but nonetheless responding sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously in a manner that jurists at the time thought they were, um, you know, participating in something that was a, well, that was a response to what was going on in the time, right? Whether it was a response that a, that consciously brought on and embraced modernity or one that thought itself as, you know, modifying it or one that even thought of itself as kind of resisting it, but nonetheless had to adapt to the changing circumstances in ways that are, um, you know, that cannot be reduced to kind of what, what, what went before. So for me, I think one of the kind of major you know, it's hard to find a, a tool or a set of tools by which we can judge one or the other. But what I do in the book anyways, is truly, really try to zero in on social context and think about how those contexts are number one, changing, in this case, Egyptian society, but in but also changing the way that jurists, because they're changing society, are also changing the way jurists are dealing with, in some cases, age-old questions, right? How they're adapting them and what is required of them in order to to both remain intellectually viable options, right? Um, that they're not, you know, by the populace at large seen as something that's just a kind of relic, the way that, you know, the way that I portrayed before. Um, no, they're still intellectually viable options, but in order to do so, they have to actually, you know, think of the material that they're working with in ways that are, um, that are, that are in some ways different, right? Like I said, in some ways consciously doing so. So, um, so they are responding to these things and they're responding in ways that are often still maintaining a distinction, right? These traditionalist jurists that I'm interested in, the one in particular, Bakhit al-Muzi that I'm interested in, drawing a distinction between himself and the modernist or the reformist, but nonetheless participating. And in some cases, I would say participating even more strongly within a colonial modernity, right? Basically for the very reason that I've sort of laid out before, which is that I think that it is it is perhaps too optimistic to think one can escape it altogether, even those who are claiming to have escaped it, right, are doing so perhaps for, for whatever reason, for rhetorical reason, for reasons of claimed continuity or what have you. You know, I don't 
also want to deny that there is a kind of connection between what, what someone like Bakhit is doing and the past. And yet at the same time, it's important to kind of key in on important moments in which he's drawing, in which he's going in a different direction, what that says about the kind of changing intellectual parameters at play at the time. So in, in this answer, you talk about adaptation, responses, context. So that leads us to a more methodological question. So the book mainly focuses on the writing of Bakhit al as you just said, but we find that you don't only focus on the texts he wrote. In the book, we find like we find discussion about the context in, w- in which his discourse arises. So for example, you speak about modernity, colonial conditions, the rise of scientism, uh, etc. So the question is, how do you approach the relation between texts and context? Do, do, do you read texts and intellectuals as agents? Or do you read their ideas as simply determined by the social and economic conditions? This is a really good question. And I think also a really difficult one, because it really taps into a lot of kind of deeper philosophical issues um, that have been, you know, really very well trodden, let's say, terrain in um, over the past couple hundred years. And I don't know that I have, I, I probably find myself kind of moving in between the two options that you've, um, that you've outlined here, right? So I don't think that there is a kind of direct that intellectual developments are driven entirely, let's say, by economic relations, by social power relations, and so on. And yet I do think that that these elements have an important role to play. Perhaps I think that that's the case much more than, let's say, a jurist writing within the Islamic tradition, who is continuing to write, let's say, within the Islamic tradition, right, and continuing, you know, having a claim to being a Hanafi, you know, thinks of themselves as writing, and that's much more within the text that they're dealing with, right? And maybe I would want to say that there is more going on in the kind of social social world. On the other hand, I'm not sure that, you know, ideas kind of proceed on their own. They are, you know, to speak to your, to the way you phrase the question, right? I I do think they have kind of a certain kind of intellectual role, an agency, let's say, that they play a role in the world. So ideas also play a role in the world. I think for me, what I'm really interested in is trying to think about how discourse develops, right? How it moves in particular ways. Okay. And so here, I think, you know, there's this kind of affinity, uh, with uh, with you know what we might call a kind of post-structuralist approach. What I, yeah, so what I'm actually really interested in is thinking about the parameters of the discourse that one is working in, that one is thinking in. In the book in particular, and, and even more broadly in the way I think about things, I think like I think very much about the sorts of background assumptions that structure the way we think about things. Right. And so part of the argument is very much that these background assumptions are shifting or changing or are, are taking on new significations, new valences. Um, so such that someone like Bakhit can continue to speak in a language that is familiar to Hanafis from centuries before, but nonetheless cast them in, in ways that are perhaps speaking much more to a present, right? Or speak in language that is familiar to the tradition, but but in ways that are, you know, that are speaking also to the changes that are happening at a particular time. So I, I'm really interested in trying to think a little bit about what that discourse looks at at any particular time, right? So what are the background assumptions? What are the basic parameters? 
what are, and here's where the social conditions sort of enter back in, what are the social conditions that enter into and push us, not necessarily constrain us, not necessarily limit us from thinking other things or exclude us from thinking other things, but certainly push us in certain directions. And so one of the, let's take, just to take an example, right? One of the themes of the book is really to think about the way that the kind of antagonistic social um, relations between what we've previously called modernists and traditionalists. Um, those are in quotes, of course, right? How that particular contestation over institutions, over certain laws, re legal reforms, over the press, over, you know, the who gets to inhabit the place of authority, those particular contestations actually pushed the conversation in particular directions, okay? And as I argue in the book, right, it pushed them in ways in which those that were called traditionalists need to sort of bolster their credentials by showing that they are too, they too are current and they are viable options in the present day. So that's one example, right? And I'm all, but I, I guess the kind of overarching thing that that really the overarching let's say social condition that really animates the book is is the presence of, of a colonial power, right? So colonialism, yes, in this case is a power relation, but it's also a power relation that is mediated in ways that draws upon the resources of the tradition. And also, but at the same time, the tradition reflects the kind of existence of that power relation. So I would say, you know, kind of, you know, it, it's a big question. And I would say simply that I'm not sure that I fall necessarily on one side of the equation or the other, but I am trying to kind of craft something that perhaps draws on both of those. And I find that they're both quite insightful and can be used for particular purposes by, by different scholars. Uh, amazing. So let's move to the final and perhaps simpler question, which is about interdisciplinarity. In your book, we see that you engage with different disciplines as uh, and fields of studies. It combines intellectual history, religious studies, anthropology, philology, and literally theory, which is actually impressive. But this leads us to the question of the practicality of interdisciplinary studies. One, one of the critiques is that interdisciplinary studies are overwhelming and impractical. My, my question is, how do you approach interdisciplinarity in your work? And what is your advice to future intellectual historians who wish to conduct such a project? Yeah, this is something that really occupied me also as I was writing, because it is a really difficult question. And I, I mean, I think the challenge really is to find that kind of balance. That's what it was for me. I mean, I think different people will find the balance in different places. I think what I found most helpful, and you're absolutely right, that there is a kind of, you know, one can get overwhelmed by the degree of things that you have to read, by the things that you have to know, by the sorts of various discourses that circulate in the academy and then also you know to some extent the work we do also spills over into other contexts that are doing kind of in which people are doing intellectual work that is very important for us um lots of different discourses and so um, there's always this temptation or there's always this feeling anyways that one has to do all of those things and i think that that you're right to say that that's very overwhelming and i think the thing that i would say is uh, maybe in terms of maybe to start with the advice bit first right i think people who are interested in doing much more interdisciplinary work, I think, need to have their interdisciplinarity sort of emerge in an organic way. 
right? So I think for many of us, we have questions that we take up that we're very interested in. Um, and those questions may be, may be spurred on or inspired by something you read in a particular book, as it was in my case. Um, it may be spurred on because you heard something in a lecture, you know, different things, right? And so we zero in on a particular text or we zero in on a set of texts. And I think what's really important is that we take, is that we, you know, not, we remain grounded in those textual sources that we have. At the same time, I think those texts kind of cry out for a kind of contextualization in many cases. At least, again, this has been my experience. And so what one needs to kind of be attentive to, so as we're kind of engrossing ourselves in the argumentation, as we're engrossing ourselves in the kind of philological specificities, in the textual history and so on, right? And really kind of grounding ourselves in the text, we're also, I think, uh, exposed to a way of thinking that that points to convergences with other fields, that points to convergences with other discussions happening perhaps in another discipline. And I think that's an opportunity to kind of, you know, venture out a little bit and to uh, immerse yourself in a different discussion that's happening somewhere else. And to think about, and sometimes this is hard too, to think about how, it, how these things apply and how they don't apply, but to sort of take a step back and think about how does it apply to my particular case. So here I think, I feel like anyways, that uh, one can still be relatively well grounded in what they're doing because they're not just trying to, you know, you know, shoehorn in a particular discussion because it happens to be current at the time that you're writing, you know, a book or a dissertation or what have you, but rather because it actually has something meaningful to contribute to the, to the discussion, right? So I think for me, I think part of what it means to do history is precisely to place texts in that kind of contextualization. And in some ways, I think the inheritance that we have in Islamic studies doesn't always lend itself to that. And so we do have to um, make an effort. I will say, I think that this is, you know, that as um, Islamic studies kind of, you know, grounds itself has a, has a, has a kind of um, deeper grounding within lots of different disciplines within the academy that that almost flows naturally, right? So I may be interested in people who write, let's say, in anthropology, not being an anthropologist, right? I might be interested in someone who writes in literary theory, not being someone who knows anything about that otherwise, right? I think that that kind of incremental or gradual approach is really what's worked for me. And, you know, it, interdisciplinarity can be a tough thing, right? It can be a double-edged sword also, because there's always the feeling that one is, you know, not doing, giving every discussion their due, right? And that's a difficult thing. So, I mean, I, what I would say is that, you know, there's this kind of like distinction that's drawn by uh, the philosopher Isaiah Berlin, which is between foxes and hedgehogs, right? The people who, people who, these are different kinds of intellectuals, right? People who reduce everything to a kind of major kind of overarching idea, and that's the hedgehog, right? Versus people who kind of dabble in lots of different things, if you will. And I think they're talking about it in a very kind of philosophical, he's talking about it in a very philosophical context. But what I would say is I think it also helps to think about it in terms of what we're doing, right? Whether we're kind of drilling down into a particular text, the way I think many of us are trained to do, but also not to be afraid to be a bit of a fox sometimes, right? To kind of move around and to experiment. And, and this can be, like I said, and like you pointed out, a difficult thing can be quite overwhelming. But I think if, you know, you go into it with the right sort of mindset and try to make sure that things are kind of flowing organically, hopefully this will be reflected in a richer sort of writing. Excellent. Professor Jeanette Khadri, thank you very much for joining us today and for this rich discussion. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.